please stand for the reading of the Lord. At that time, Herod the Tetrach heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his tenants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work for him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in a prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked for. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request to be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who was carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he would draw by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him and foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion with them and healed their sick. You may be seated. Well, that is quite the uplifting passage, isn't it? When mom calls you for the church debrief today afterwards and says, what inspiration did you get at church today? You can say, oh, we sat in that John the Baptist beheading passage. And boy, I got a whole new outlook on life. Um, But uh, those of you who are joining up with us, we are in a series called uh, Together in Matthew. And we're doing something we haven't tried before. There's something called a lectionary for those of you who did not grow up in that kind of a church background that follows the church calendar all year long. And there's a gospel reading that goes with each season of the church calendar. And so we are going with the Matthew readings that are not chronological to the book of Matthew. They are tied to the church calendar. And so this is the passage that is assigned for this week. And so this can be one of the values of a lectionary is I'm not sure which series I would have done this passage in, but um, it is the passages assigned for today. And it's the passage we get to wrestle with today. And, you know, and all, it's this is going to be good for us. Yeah. From the inspiration of God, the church mothers, the church fathers believe this was an important account. Matthew believed this is an important account. And so... It's where we're at today. We are going to do a quick pause before diving into it. I do want to do a big push. We are um, getting ready to launch the second ever midweek uh, experience in a couple of Wednesdays. So yeah, this is, um, we had about 45 of y'all who participated in this last one, which is fantastic. So um, this announcement is especially for those who are newer and want to jump in. So the format, so this will start week and a half, January 25th, Wednesday, January 25th. We'll do another 10-week cycle with a break for Ash Wednesday. And so the midweek thing, the idea is we all come together. We start in here as a larger group. This time through the midweek, we're going to go through the same, since we're following the lectionary, we're going to go through the same passages of Matthew that we're going through on Sundays in our small group discussions. So we'll set it up briefly as a big group in here. Then we have small groups, designated small groups that break out into different rooms around the church for about 45 minutes. Then we have a big meal together at the end and enjoy table fellowship. So we had a great run in the fall. The number one feedback that some people did say it would sure would be nice to eat beforehand, which I totally get that. Um, but a big part of this experience is being able to like really sit down and kind of meet some of the larger group within the church. So we are going to keep this format where food is at the end. So I know it's a little late for some of you, an eight o'clock, either dinner one or dinner two. But that's how we are going to we're going to we're going to kind of drive that again. So um, so the announce. So let me make two different applications. So if you did the first one, you were part of it. You're one of those 45 that did it. So an all-church email will go out today. So if you don't typically get the all-church emails, please come see me. I'll make sure that you get on that database. So for those of you who did version one, 
we're going to ask you on that church email just three simple questions. Would you really like to stay in the same group you were in before? Would you really like to try a new group? Or are you kind of indifferent? And that will help us place you in your group. And then for those of you who are new, there will be some information on there saying, yes, I'd like to participate in it, and then I'll get, follow up with you and give you more specific instructions. So again, that start Wednesday, the 25th. We'll go up until uh, Holy Week, and then we'll take a pause again. So let me give you my email again. I don't have this on the slide, but if you're new and you don't think you get emails, my email is just first letter, last name, D Hill. Can you say that with me, D Hill? You don't have to say the second part. It's too long. RiverCityChicago.com. D Hill at RiverCityChicago.com. Um, please let me know if you'd like to participate. And we're looking forward to that. Sound good? All right. Love the enthusiasm. And just in general, it feels good in here today. Right? I say this all the time. Like how you all show up affects all of us. So when everybody's sleepy and disengaged, it's like feels like kind of a mountain getting up here. And when you all are hot and feeling it, it's, it's fun to be together. So um, all right. Let's jump into this passage that is really important but very sad. Um, so you can go ahead and bring it back up if you don't mind. Um, uh, so one thing about this story, it's, it's uh, you kind of got to understand Matthew's storytelling approach, otherwise it gets a little bit confusing. Have you ever seen one of those movies? I feel like this happens a lot in movies, or at least, as I've confessed, my, my genre of movie watching is very narrow. It's either action or romance, and preferably both. And so uh, um, it's not uncommon when you see a movie where it just starts off super fast-paced. There's like somebody running and being chased, or a most recent one I watched, a car driving through a building and you have no idea why. And it seems kind of chaotic and confusing. And then it'll pause and then the text will come at the bottom and it'll say, two days earlier or two weeks earlier, two months earlier, right? I get nervous when people play with time like that. I'm like, just start with the two. But anyway, that, that's not an uncommon approach, right? Um, Matthew takes that approach here. The story gets a little bit confusing if you don't realize that's how he, he starts at the end and then comes back and does it in a very fast manner. So, so where this account begins is actually at the end. This there's two parallel storylines coming that Matthew's, of course, most telling us about kind of the development of Jesus and the storyline of Jesus that's eventually going to lead to kind of his crucifixion and resurrection. So he's first telling us about Jesus, and Matthew reports at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard reports about Jesus. Okay, so this is one storyline that's going to be happening where um, in the chronology of how Matthew tells the story of Jesus, this is a new moment in the story in that Jesus is now on the radar of the king of the area that he's in. Jesus is working in Galilee. Here, the Tetrarch will come back to him in a minute. He's over the area where Galilee's at. So the story begins with Herod trying to make sense of who Jesus is. And while trying to make sense of who Jesus is, Herod, the Tetrarch says, perhaps this Jesus is John the Baptist who has risen from the dead. Uh, now, when you're reading, of course, we're just jumping in here today, but when you're reading the story of Matthew, we don't actually know before this moment that John the Baptist is dead. So this is, this is all of a sudden kind of an alarming, uh, to the listeners at least at the time, this is an alarming uh, um, new detail. John the Baptist, who plays such a significant story as one who prepares the way for Jesus, is dead. And because of that reality, Herod is wondering if possibly this is Jesus, John the Baptist, who he actually had killed, resurrected, incarnated as Jesus. And so this is the, the Jesus storyline. Uh, but now we're going to come back to John. So Matthew tells us the end. This is like one of those fast-paced things happens. This is two days earlier, two, two weeks earlier. So now in verse 3 is where the story kind of um, gets going in terms of what happened to John the Baptist. And so let's make our way through this. Now this is, this is um, there's three characters. There's actually four characters in the story. You can get a little bit lost when you're looking at all four stories. But um, uh, I think it's important. And those of you who like history, th this is really well documented, not just here in Matthew, but 
there's a lot to say about all these characters. So we're going to kind of make our way through these characters to kind of understand what's happening. All right, you got, you got the energy to do that? I think it's interesting. A lot of you will. Some of you won't. You have to dig deep. But we'll all do this together. You're in a good mood today. So let's look at the three characters that are in there. So we saw them in verse 1, and now again in verse 3. Herod, the Tetrarch. Now, Herod is not a person's name. That's a title for king. And uh, if you read the story of Matthew, you know in Matthew 1, at the very beginning of the story, Herod plays a huge role. It's not this Herod. This is the son of that Herod. The opening Herod in the book of Matthew plays a huge role. Uh, those of you who know the story, when Herod the king hears that Jesus has been pronounced king of the Jews is coming in retaliation to make sure he can try to kill Jesus. What is the Herod, this guy's Herod's dad, what is Herod and Matthew 1 do to all the baby boys in Jerusalem, in Bethlehem? Kills them all. One of the most grotesque scenes that we see in the New Testament, a genocide of all little boys um, in an attempt to kill baby Jesus. He kills all the boys. Right? That's a pretty good snapshot of who that Herod was. He was an evil, vicious man. So Herod, that king, he's dead now by this point. That Herod has tons and tons of kids, um, way too many to account for in this. But there's three that are principally important, three sons who all vie and ultimately war against each other to try to get the kingdom that the original Herod had, okay? So um, if you're interested in these names, you can write them down. There's actually whole histories about all of them. But here's the three names I want you to, um, to learn, two that are in the story, one that's not. We'll do the first that's not. Um, say, say with me, uh, these are uh, old Greek names, but Archelaus, this is the first one. Say Archelaus, okay? This is the first of the three sons that's vying for the kingdom that the Herod in Matthew 1 had. And he is now at this, he's not in the story, but at this time he is ruling, he's got the area where Jerusalem was, um, and Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus. So he's not in the story, but he's one of the three sons. Second son, Antipas. Can you say that? Antipas. Antipas is who we're seeing here. All right? Antipas um, was the one who most wanted to be like his dad, so he took on the name Herod. So when it talks about, in verse 1 and verse 3, Herod the Tetrarch, this is the son Antipas who took over the area where Galilee was. And Galilee is where Jesus is getting his public ministry going. Galilee is where John the Baptist was at the time. So I won't call him Antipas anymore. I'll just call him Herod. But so this is Herod Jr. who is um, trying to live out the kind of same brutal, kind of coercive, power-heavy way of leading that his dad did. Now there's a third son, and we see him here as well. He's at least referred to. Verse 3, Herod's arrested John, bound him, put him in prison because of Herodias. We'll get to her in just a moment. Let's start with the three brothers first. And his, who was his brother? Philip. Say Philip. That's the easy one to remember. Philip. Say Philip. This is the third brother, right? So the three brothers that war together, Archelaus, Antipas, who we're called now Herod, and Philip, the three of them war together, eventually settle on these three areas. The first two had most of the area. Philip, I think from what I studied in the history book, seems like kind of the weakest of the three and kind of submitted to the other two. So this is where it like starts to like move towards Jerry Springer-like in, in the kind of story. So um, <laughs> Philip is married in his kingdom. Herod Jr., who wants to be like his dad, goes and visits Philip's area of the kingdom, decides that he likes Philip's wife better than his wife. The wife decides she likes that better and would like to rule in a bigger area. So there's differing accounts of how this, you know, some think it was very violent how this happened. But so Herod takes the wife of Philip and brings her back to the area where he is king and leaves Philip to do whatever Philip's going to do. This is where it gets like even kind of more twisted. Um, she takes on the name Herodias. So just like Herod, that's a proper name. Herodias is not her name. It's the name of the queen. So you got Herod and Herodias. So Herodias used to be Philip's wife. Here's where it gets a little weird. She was also the niece of both of them. She was Herod's niece and she was Philip's niece. So she marries Philip. Herod takes her over. 
she becomes Herodias. So now you've got this just kind of like nasty couple um, that's ruling in the Galilee area, Herod and Herodias. And those are the first three characters, and then you've got the other brother, Archelaus, who's ruling where Jerusalem is. So th th this is kind of like the backdrop of what's happening here. Y'all tracking with me so far? I, th I think it's interesting, right? It's like it's real twisted. All right, so now let's move, um, keep going in the story. Um, so Herod wanted to kill John, was afraid of the people because they considered John prophet. All right, so here's where it gets real gross and twisty, um, like for real. Like it's, it's, it's really just really sad. So on Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests. Okay, who's the daughter of Herodias? Now, she's not named here, but this is one of those cases because there were so many historians who kind of captured this. There's a pretty clear sense that this was, her name was Salome. You want to say that with me? Salome. You can probably guess where that comes, which Hebrew word that comes from, Greek word that's from Shalom. It was a common woman's name. So this is Salome. So Salome is not Herod's daughter by birth. It is Herodias' daughter from Philip. Okay, so remember, Philip's got his kingdom. He's married originally to Herodias. They have a daughter, Salome. When Herod decides, if Herodias decides, they're going to come into this area. They bring Salome with. And so, I mean, best guess is she's a young teenager, 12, 13, 14, something like this. And so you get kind of this twisted scene where you've got this, like, really corrupt and cruel couple, Herod and Herodias. So he's having a big birthday party. And... He has his teenage daughter start dancing for the guests, okay? Just like gross, power, patriarchy, the whole thing, right? I mean, it's just, it just it, it's meant. Matthew wants us to squirm when we see it. And actually, this is, if you, if you're, if you find this as interesting as I did, if you, if you look at Salome, Philip's daughter, um, there's all this kind of, she's like a big figure in art. There's a lot of paintings on her, and it's so distressing. She is consistently portrayed as this like seductress woman who led to John the Baptist's death. And that, it just, I just feel like you just see all these ways in which power and patriarchy kind of play out, and how we tell stories always is a powerful thing, right? I think it is so gross and irresponsible to depict her as some kind of a seductress. This is a teenage girl whose stepdad can have her killed if he wants, and he's making her dance for all of his friends. And this is where I think it gets even grosser, right? It says, the daughter of Herodias danced with the guest, and it pleased Herod so much, right? There's this gross scene that his stepdaughter's dancing for all the men there, and he likes it so much that the gregarious king is going to make this drunken kind of promise to her. Uh, you're pleasing me so much in the way you're pleasing the men here that you can ask for anything you want. All right, so now, and this is also where I think it's just so unfair that Salome is the one who's depicted as the villainess here because it's Herodias that's upset. So why is it that they all hate John the Baptist so much? Well, I just told you this whole Jerry, Jerry Springer backstory, right? When, when Herod goes to Philip's kingdom, takes Herodias, they come back. John the Baptist thinks a whole lot of bad stuff is happening there. And part of being a prophet is you publicly back then would call out when there were multiple layers of sin happening. And so John the Baptist was very vocal that it was wrong, that what Herod had done in taking this wife from Philip and then relocating and you know, getting rid of his wife and that now they're ruling together. John the Baptist had been very vocal that this is wrong. And so that's why we see three chapters earlier in Matthew 11, John the Baptist had been imprisoned because he was speaking out against the king and this new wife, Herodias. And so Salome is dancing the king is pleased by this. He says, you can do whatever you would want. You can ask for anything. I don't think there's any reason she would ask for John the Baptist to be dead. This is her mother's wish, right? So she's, she's kind of being pulled in the current to power here. And so 
That's when she says, you know, I would like to see John the Baptist not only dead, but have his head brought here on a platter. And with that, we get not only this really kind of twisted story of power and privilege and money and greed and you know, oppression and injustice, we not only get this, but we get like a really brutal ending to the story of John the Baptist. Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest prophet that ever lived. And this is how the greatest prophet who ever lived dies, from a drunken, irresponsible king who fulfills the wishes of his equally corrupt spouse who asks the daughter to leverage the, ple- the, the affirmation she had got from dancing for the men at this party to have John the Baptist killed. And that's how John dies. That is the story of how John the Baptist dies, is being caught up in this brutal, corrupt, ugly, evil system that was at play at that time. Okay, that's heavy, that's sad, that's um, real. Like, what are we to do with that? What, why, why, why does the Bible have that in here? What, what is God hoping we would get from here? Well, I think this is, this is where we look to Jesus um, to see how he responded. Um, and this is where I want to kind of start to turn the corner now. And like, I actually do think there's some really important application here. But one of the things, so Jesus has God in the flesh, that means so many things. But one of the most, I would call this the most underrated things, one of the most underratedly important things about Jesus in the flesh is that Jesus was fully human. And not, we could say a lot about what that meant for Jesus, but here's what that means for us. Jesus being fully human means he experienced the full range of human emotions, right? So there are moments where Jesus feels excited and uh, filled with anticipation and, 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 you know, kind of at a high level. There are also times where we see Jesus react in a way that's fully human to the grotesque, horrible evils in the world. And that's where I think this next part is important. If you'll take it now to the next part, verse 12 um, and 13. Let's look at what Jesus does now. So yeah, if you flip ahead to 12 and 13. Yeah, so there's 12. Let's start there. So John's disciples came, took his body and bear it. Then they go and they tell Jesus. All right, now next verse. 13. When Jesus heard what happened, he withdrew to a, by, by boat privately to a solitary place, okay? Bottom line, Jesus is human. He's experiencing the world as a human being. And when Jesus hears this news of what happened to John the Baptist, he is devastated. He's devastated. Um, if you were here last week, the, the lectionary passage for last week was Matthew 3, where John the Baptist is baptizing Jesus, right? Where Jesus is hearing the voice of God come and say, this is my beloved with whom I am well pleased. I mean, John played this huge prophetic role. He, he came and prepared the way for Jesus. So John came first and said, we need to repent. Jesus would come later say that. John said, you need to be baptized. Jesus would later say that. John now is executed. Jesus is going to be executed. He plays this foretelling role. But also they were cousins and they were friends and they were colleagues. I remember the story where um, when John the Baptist is in his mother's womb and Jesus is in Mary's womb, the two babies sense each other from the womb. Right? They were very connected from the very beginning. John is the one who baptizes. Right? It's... It's, it's somebody who, it's a relationship that Jesus treasures. And Jesus is, I, I, in my own reflections, and I guess I would just share these, I feel like we can clearly see two different reactions from Jesus. For one, and I think this is what Matthew's trying to hi- highlight, Jesus is staggered. That's the first word I want to use. He's staggered by just the level of sin and brokenness and evil in the world, right? That the greatest prophet who ever lived meets his end in the human life 
at a drunken party where a daughter is being exploited and a mom uses that as an opportunity to kill the guy who had been speaking out against them, right? Jesus, Jesus is just sinning in just the reality of how ugly the world can be when left to our own, own devices. And of course, this is not unique to Herod and Herodias, right? This is the story all through the Old Testament. It's a story all through the New Testament. It's our story today with that when left to our own devices, our own devices, sin, selfishness, brokenness, evil, I mean, just we, we can do horrible things to each other, right? We can just do horrible things to each other. And I think it's so important to remember that Jesus doesn't kind of take on this kind of fairy tale stance where it's like, oh, I'm here now. Bad things don't happen anymore. Everywhere I go, things are good. I mean, this is, this is right when Jesus is getting things going and his friend is brutally killed for stupid reasons. And it's just another manifestation of sin, brokenness, evil in the world. And Jesus sits in that. And then kind of refer to the story. But I think Jesus is just sad. I think he's just straight up sad. It's John 11 where we see Lazarus dying. But it's always struck me that when Lazarus dies, Jesus' friend, when, when Lazarus dies, shortest verse in the, in the Bible, we used to use this as kids all the time to, to win the memory contest, but that's the least important part. In John 11, it says that when Lazarus died, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And I think there's just something so significant for all of us to remember that even as there's all these hopes we have for a different kind of world, even as we think about our own place and participating in the coming kingdom of God, when we see injustice, evil, pain, hurt happen, like we're meant to feel it deeply. We're meant to see it. We're meant to look it in the eye. We're meant to kind of allow the depths of it to sink in just in the way it did for Jesus, right? I mean, I mean, Jesus is on his way to the cross, but you get these moments for him where he sees just how ugly the world is without redemption, without love, without grace. And this is another one, and one that hits close to home, right? His friend, his colleague, his cousin, John the Baptist, has just died. And it's interesting. God doesn't reveal it to Jesus that John the Baptist dies. It's John the Baptist's attendants who come and tell Jesus. That's how Jesus finds out this news, right? He is human still. He hears this news and he says, I got to get out of here. I have to get out of here and I have to just sit inside of this. And then let's put it together. This, I won't say any more on this. I want to go to the, I want to go to the last part of this. This is um, just in terms of where this is located in the Bible. I think it's like helpful to remember before I read the verse. You know, a lot of you who grew up in church know the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, right? That's a very famous story. A lot of us don't realize that this is the bridge, the bridge like the, the feeding of the 5,000 comes out of this. John the Baptist is beheaded. Jesus is agonizing over sitting in this. And it's from here. You'll see in Matthew 14, that's what happens next. He's going to feed the 5,000. That's a story for another day. But the bridge verse, I think, is really important to kind of put the full circle on this thing. So um, Jesus has withdrawn. He just He's hurting. He's sad. He's staggered by the immensity of the evil and the injustice and the oppression. But still, the crowds are following, the crowds are following, the crowds are following him. And as we get to this final verse of the story, you know I, I emphasize this all the time, but I just, I, I think it's so, so important. How we see God is just one of the most important things about how we live life in a healthy way. Maybe I'll say it differently. How we see God seeing us is one of the most important things that we can be reformed and transformed into. How we think about how God thinks of us is such a critical part of growth. 
And so Jesus is one of the clearest shortcuts to that is seeing how God thinks. And so this last verse is so important. Jesus is hurting. He's just stared evil and injustice and brokenness in, as clearly in the eye as he can. And then he sees the people. And how does he see them? When Jesus landed and he sees a large crowd, what wells up within him? Anger, judgment, revenge, uh, no longer wanting to fulfill his mission? No. I mean, the, 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 the heart of God comes through this and how Jesus sees. How does Jesus see? Jesus sees them and he feels compassion. He sees them, feels compassion, and then moves towards them in a way where he's healing people. And this, I think, gets to, this is where I think we can start to move towards what does this mean for us? This is the unique kind of almost bifocal, the, the dual nature of how we have to view the world. I think how Jesus sees and responds is a template for how we are to see and respond. Again, remembering the first part, that when Jesus sees the sin and evil and injustice, he doesn't shy away from it. He doesn't try to glamorize it. He doesn't try to come up with trite answers. Oh, it's all okay. It's all going to work out in the end. And when Jesus looks injustice and evil and sin in the eye, he's staggered by it. He's got to pull himself away and sit in the reality of what he's up against. I think that's important for us too. That's, that's an important part of following in the way of Jesus is to acknowledge that this is not a fairy tale, right? This is not some glamorous story that says just follow Jesus and believe the right things and all will go well from that point. It just doesn't ever, that's just not ever how the story shows up in the New Testament. There is a reality, a soberness you could even say about not only how the world is, but I guess if we're going to be honest about how our own hearts are. About our own hearts, right? I think one of the things that really struck me in this story is just thinking about the fact that most of us will never do something as horrible as Herod and Herodias did. But some of that is because we don't have the power to do that. We don't have the privilege to do that and be able to get away with it. I think truth be told, most of us without the redeeming power of God, something that curbs those inner broken desires, we are all capable of doing the things that get repeated generation after generation after generation by those who are in power. That's like inside all of us. That's part of the story. To deny that, I think, becomes really imbalanced. To over-center, over-emphasize, it also becomes imbalanced and even dangerous because the main story of the Bible is not we're all sinners and you know we're screwed because of that. The main story of the Bible is that God sees us and sees what's going to happen to us if we don't get saved from that. And the story constantly is of God's loving intervention that before we even ask for help, God is saying, there's another way to live. Like this is what the kingdoms of this world look like. And it's an extreme depiction, but it's also the clear biblical portrayal over and over again that left to our own devices, we create not only chaos for ourselves, but we hurt people. And then we take it even further. We create systems and structures that perpetually hurt people. Like that is where power, privilege, selfishness, unbridled greed. This is where it all goes every single time. That is the kingdom of this world. And Jesus continues saying, right, there's a different way. There's a different orientation of love, of grace, of peace, of compassion, of healing. There's a different way to live. But they're linked because you got to see where it all goes when left to our devices so that, you know, I don't know. I, this is just from my own experience. The, the, and there's something, there's something about doing justice work that speeds this process up for me you know, I used to think growing up, like, you got to say the sinner's prayer so that you're in right with God and, you know, you're not left to your own sin. You don't actually take the chance of not being in heaven. I just don't think of it like that anymore. I think of it now as I see what the world looks like when left to its own devices. I see where I go when left to my own devices. Like, 
I am in desperate need of salvation from that. I am in desperate need of liberation from where I will go. I'm in desperate need of liberation from where this world will go. I need a power that's bigger than me that helps me do what he does here, that looks at the world and sees it with not anger, resentment, disconnection, detachment, but with compassion that looks to join in the healing of the world. Like this is the story, right? The story at the end of the day is the God who comes, the person of Jesus invites us into this same story where we first experience that compassion of God, then see the world, that compassion, where we experience the healing of God and we join in the healing of that world. Right? That's the ultimate story. But I think that's why Matthew puts in the story of John being beheaded in here because these two storylines are always linked to each other. The brokenness, the corruption, the story of where people will go when left to their own devices, and then the intervention of God who comes to see us with compassion, heal us, send us out into the world, seeing people with compassion and looking to heal. And this, this kind of duality, I think, is where transformation happens, where we learn to see the world as it really is. We need to learn to see ourselves as we really are. We see the need for God's liberation, and then we join, experiencing compassion, experiencing healing, going into the world, seeing people with compassion. I mean, isn't that something to like really believe we can do what Jesus does, that we can see the world for as broken and messed up as it is, but we can still look at people of all different backgrounds and be filled with God's compassion for them. That we can see the brokenness of this world, but that the instinct is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and to join in the healing of that, to have that actually come out of us because of the transformation we're experiencing. I think as important as John's story is, and that's an important storyline, how Jesus experiences this and how he responds is kind of inviting us into the same type of response where we feel it deeply, but ultimately join in the storyline of compassion and healing. Amen? Join me in prayer, if you will. Hmm. God, as we uh, reflect on this passage, a sad tale of human depravity, uh, of a king, of a queen, of a stepdaughter caught up in all of that, of a great prophet killed because of a drunken, grotesque party. As we just kind of sit in all that, we remember, <laughs> I don't know, for me at least, I think first, it's just a good reminder that the instability that we sense in the world, the chaos we sense in the world, the evil and ugliness we often see in the world, why there's, there's nothing unique about it to this day and age. This is, this is the struggle generation in and generation out. And you don't gloss over that. You don't tell us fairy tales that say all that's gone if we just believe in you. Instead, we learn how to show up in a different kind of a way with a different kind of power, with a different kind of eyesight, with a different kind of orientation of how we live inside of that. Where we have this vivid and real sense of where everything goes when left to its own devices, when the grace and power of God are not actively at work we just watch this happen over and over again. Just the interests of self, the exercise of power, racism, patriarchy, classism, the way these things construct the world in their image and just lead to such pain and heartache. I, don't, I, I, I of course, want to get to the hopeful part, but I do feel like there's something in this that for some of us, we actually need a deeper capacity to be able to see the world as it is and not shrink from it, to not come up with trite sayings for it to not find a way out that makes us feel comfortable. We've got to be able to see that this is the world when left to its own selfish devices. 
And God, we really look at you through the person of Jesus. And I pray that we would allow ourselves to be seen by you in the same way you saw people then. You looked out and you had every human reason to despise, to hate even, less just to be angry, to be resentful, to be disinterested. And we see over and over again, when you look at us, your heart is filled with love and compassion. And when you walk with us, your desire is that we be healed. God, if we just really, truly allowed ourselves to believe that fully, that that's how you see us is with compassion and love and that this is what you want for us, to be healed, to be made whole, to experience life fully. Mm, I want that for myself. Selfishly, I want to be healed. I want you to do that. I want to trust that's who you are. I want to position myself and posture myself to receive that. In this room, in those who are listening right now virtually, remind us that this is who you are, that you long for us to be healed. Hmm. And I'm thinking we had a joint River City, our city prayer time this week and somebody prayed, used Henry Nouwen's term, wounded healers, that we are sent out into the world often wounded by the sins of others, usually by the sins of others. Most of the wounds we carry, I mean, some of it's from our own mistakes, but so many of the wounds we carry is because people hurt us. All this stuff we're talking about, selfishness gone awry, people using power and privilege. Many of us carry deep marks, deep scars from what selfishness gone wrong has done to us. Yet even still, you heal us. You let our scars be a testimony just as your scars were a testimony we enter into the world seeing it, learning to see it as you do with love and compassion. We enter the world finding, discovering in our own unique ways, both as individuals and communities, how to participate in the healing because that's who you are and what you do. So God, I pray this would just be one more moment where we can encounter that love, encounter that compassion, position ourselves for healing. And as we finish off our time together by singing back in worship, um, remind us that you are indeed the God who sees the world as it is, but sees us with compassion and love, who longs for us to be healed and to be sent out into the world as wounded healers. Amen. Mm, such a sweet atmosphere in here. Mm. Can I invite you if you're able to stand up for a closing benediction and we'll keep worshiping here if you want to stay. But. I think a couple things I would say. One, this passage today reminds us that it's okay to remember that this world is a hard place, a, a brutal place even at times. And uh, I think it's noteworthy that Jesus, not once but twice, has to withdraw. He does so. We looked at it. He feeds the 5,000. He does it again I mean, I, right afterwards to just kind of sit in the reality of that. But what I want to give is the benediction. It's linked to last week if you were here last week. Last week we looked at baptism of Jesus. We talked about the three words that God speaks over us that we need to remember. That you're what? God's child, God's beloved, and that God takes delight in you. We talked about the need to be conscious of that and to draw upon that. And so this one's similar but different what we see today. May you remember that when God looks at you, God sees you with love and compassion. 
And that when God looks at you, God wants you to be healed and whole. And that when God calls you, God calls you into the world to see people with compassion and love. And God calls you to join in the healing of the world. May you draw upon that. May you become increasingly conscious of that. And all God's people said, amen. Love you all.